verse 27. And while you're turning there, let me attempt to prime our minds and our hearts for the passage by asking you a rhetorical question this morning. And this is that question. What do you perceive to be the greatest hindrance to the gospel? What is the greatest hindrance to the gospel aside from believers not sharing it? What is the greatest hindrance to the gospel? Well, I'll tell you, it is not Satan. It is not an, an equal battle between evil and good, between God and Satan. Um, though he may try, he will not uh, hinder the progress of the gospel. Nor is it the opposition of the world. Try as it may to resist the agenda and will and purpose of God. Rather, in its opposition, the world often serves as the very tool to cause the gospel to flourish. Larry, Doug, and myself in the last couple of weeks uh, had the privilege of hearing a testimony from another part of the world, another country, where the government of that country is very hostile to Christianity, and yet, in the midst of that hostility, they are actually serving the purpose of the gospel. So it's not the opposition of the world that hinders the gospel. And it's not the inability of God's people to articulate or communicate the gospel that's a hindrance. I would say most people are able to communicate the gospel even with their feelings of inadequacy to do so. At the very least, we're able to testify personally of God's grace in our lives. And that enables us to share the gospel with many people. And so, though we may think we cannot share the gospel very well, we're actually very capable of sharing the gospel. It is my observation and opinion that our greatest hindrance to the gospel's advancement in the world is the inconsistency in believers' life to live according to its standard. God has providentially decided that it will be through the mouths and efforts of His people that the gospel goes forth in the world. The Great Commission is... A testimony to that singular fact. It is for us to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. That is God's plan, God's purpose, God's ordination. And yet, that means we can often be the greatest obstacle to our own desires. It has for generations now been the number one excuse or complaint or issue for unbelievers to to believe the gospel or submit to the gospel, it is this, the perceived hypocrisy within the church, right? And we have formulated good, genuine answers to that complaint that uh, the church is full of hypocrites because none of us are perfect. We're still in need of God's grace. Uh, if there were a perfect church, then I would join it and make it imperfect. We've, we've formulated answers and sound bites to that debate but in genu genuine reality, and in, in all legitimacy here, there's a degree of honesty to that complaint. That we, by our own lack of pursuing holiness, often act as our greatest hindrance to sharing the gospel. It's a frightful and sobering thought to realize that not only can our lives discredit the gospel, but our lives actually at times have discredited the gospel. Even without our realization from times. 
It's a frightful, sobering reality. It's a humbling reality, isn't it? And by discrediting it, I don't mean uh, rendering it untrue. The gospel will be true even if nobody believes in it. By discrediting it, I mean making it seem like it's not true. Perhaps even making it unattractive. That's our plight. That's our problem as fallen people who are simultaneously redeemed and yet imperfect. And yet, that redemption, that security before God, peace with God through Jesus Christ, no more condemnation through, uh, through, before God through Jesus Christ our Lord for us who are Christians, th- those glorious realities also don't diminish the fact that we must be people who pursue lives of holiness. We must actually be striving to live lives according to the standard of the gospel. In recent years, and I think rightly so, the church has focused almost exclusively on grace. And we've talked about the need to live in grace. The, the only way we can follow God is by living in grace, and etc., etc. But part of that may be swinging the pendulum to one extreme is the neglect that there are real and serious and genuine calls in the Scripture to conform our lives to the standard of God. And yes, we do that in grace and by grace, but also by effort and commitment and devotion. The Bible does actually teach us, church, that as God's people, we are to be different. To live differently, to look differently, to act differently. This is what we come to consider in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And this morning, we're only going to consider the first phrase of that verse. And we're going to do that by intention. I intentionally wanted us to not take the whole passage. The whole passage really goes from verse 27 through the end of the chapter, verse 30. There's kind of a singular thought contained there. But I wanted us to contemplate and indeed sit upon the first phrase of verse 27 for two reasons, really. Namely, because our lives are supposed to be wholly devoted and committed to Christ. And there have been undesirable trends to devalue Christian living, even within the church. Trends that say and claim some unspecified liberation from rules in the name of experiential faith. There are indeed some who would divorce conduct from belief and maintain that you can believe something but not live your life by that belief or believe something that doesn't actually affect change in your life. That's not true, church. To be a Christian does in fact mean to submit your life to Christ as Lord. Paul, in this very letter himself in Philippians, as we've looked in verse 1, identifies himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus, more specifically and literally as slaves of Christ Jesus. In chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he's already told us his imprisonment, his testimony for his imprisonment, has been made known to everybody, and that testimony is the fact that he's not just imprisoned for Christ, but by Christ. 
Because Christ is His Master, His Lord. He is the slave of Christ. And so though in the world we live in and occupy where there's this teaching that you can believe in Christ but not submit your life to Christ, the Bible says that's just plainly not true. To follow Christ is submit to Christ. But the second reason I want us to just sit on the first phrase of verse 27 is because we live in a time, indeed it is always the time, but maybe perhaps specifically in our context, our country, we're in a unique time where the people of God need to live out their faith like never before. Because I believe and have a whole spiel that I will fight the temptation to go into this morning. I have this belief that Christianity in our nation is following its, its historical path and it is on its way out of our country. And what are God's people to do in such times? I said I'd fight the temptation, but I have to explain a little bit. We've seen Christianity here in epicenters growing up or taking root in certain places of the world, right? Like uh, during the Protestant Reformation, Germany was the epicenter of Christianity with Luther and, and Melanchthon and his surrounding friends. And yes, there were pockets in other parts of Europe, but, but centralized Europe or Germany was the epicenter of Christian teaching and, and Christian thought and theological development and the gospel was flourishing and those people were sending missionaries in other parts of the world. And then historically and, and whatnot, that epicenter moved to England, Great Britain, during the time of the English Reformation, and from England to Scotland, and then from Scotland, by God's grace, to America. But we are now getting into be the times in the not so distant future where we're no longer the epicenter of Christianity. We're not the ones sending out missionaries to other countries of the world. Soon, in our lifetime, in my opinion, it's very likely, other countries will be sending more missionaries to us than we will be sending missionaries to them. Just as we have been sending missionaries back to England, just as we've been sending missionaries back to Scotland, just as we've been sending missionaries back to Germany and Europe, the epicenters of Christianity aren't permanent. They inevitably move out. And I think that's on our horizon. And what are we to do in such times? We are to live as the light of the gospel. Our conduct is to enhance our ability to share the truth of Christ. Now don't mishear me. Because I detest the notion that you should preach the gospel at all times and if words use, if necessary use words. I detest that quote. So don't mishear me that I'm saying we only preach the gospel by our lives. I'm saying we live in such a way that we are able to then verbally share the gospel as we are called to do. So this passage, it, it will go into many other things that pertain to sharing the gospel. In verse 27 and 28 specifically, it talks about in a, in a church setting, the gospel going forth. But it only goes forth in the context of first, these Philippian believers in chapter or verse 27, living their lives in accord to the message of the gospel. 
And so I want us to sit there this morning for those two reasons. To fight the notion that we aren't supposed to submit our lives to Christ. And to encourage you to shine as the light of the gospel, even in the way that you conduct yourself in this world, because we need it. We need the gospel to be lived out in our day, our time, our context. Now, verse 27, it's an instruction from Paul, an exhortation from Paul to these Philippian Christians while he's in prison. He wants their lives to be spent for the sake of the gospel, but first, their lives must be lived in accord with the gospel. And so he calls them to an example that he's already shown and proven to be true in his own life. Remember back to verses 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. He says, these chains of mine have really served to advance the gospel. So Philippian believers, follow my example. I want you to live in such a way that your life will really serve to advance the gospel. In other words, orient your entire life around the message and work of Jesus Christ. Now that's an important note for for me to make here. Paul's not calling Christian living, uh, he's not saying that it's an adherence to this set of rules, this laundry list of do's and don'ts. He's saying Christian living is measured by a person. And that person is Christ. And so it's not a calling to submit yourselves to these do's and don'ts, though that's implied. It's rather a calling to submit yourself to Christ. And in submitting yourself to Christ, we find the list of do's and don'ts, don't we? The moral law of God. But first and foremost for the Christian, it's not trying to adhere to the moral law of God because there we fail. It's rather submitting yourself to this person. And this person is most clearly known and abundantly expressed in his work, which is known as the gospel. So Christian living that enables the gospel to be shared is living in accord with Christ. Walter Hansen says it memorably. He says the gospel of Christ provides the motive and the pattern For all Christian behavior. The motive. That which spurs us on. And the pattern. That example. Of Christian living. It is Christ. And his gospel saving message. Let's begin with the word only. By the way we will not have points this morning. I just hope to. And intend to consider each part of this phrase. By itself. And we start with that word. Only. It's an emphatic word. It's, it's meant to convey a singular emphasis of, of singular importance and singular purpose. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, if I can give you just one thing, this is it. If I can make one request of you, if I can give one instruction, this is what I would say. Now remember, the, the heartbeat of behind his instruction is in verse 25. We, we covered this last week. He says, convinced of this, that this is verse 24, remaining, which is more necessary in your account, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for, here's his purpose, his desire, your progress, both your progress and your joy in the faith. 
And if I can have one thing to say about your progress in the faith, if I can have one thing to say about your joy in the faith, it would be this. This one request. Now the request of verse 27 is honestly too high for them to accomplish. He doesn't lower the bar for them. He raises it. And He raises it beyond their reach. He calls them to live worthy of the Gospel. An impossibility out of their own efforts and own merits. Which is perhaps why most English translations use that word let in this verse as they translate this verse. That word let doesn't exist there in terms of permission giving, but in terms of submission. Rather, Paul is saying only submit your life to the worth of the gospel or the standard of the gospel. It conveys to us the idea of don't resist the gospel's transforming work. We'll talk about that in a moment. Before we go any further, we should consider actually what is the gospel, shouldn't we? It is that saving message of Christ. But what is that saving message of Christ? It is rather more comprehensive than we tend to give, give it credit. It begins where the Bible begins. God. And specifically, God is Creator, right? This is why evolution is incompatible with the Bible. If you remove God from creation, then we as humanity no longer have someone we're accountable to and have to answer for. We maintain the creation account because it's the very nature of God. So the gospel begins with God, specifically God as creator. And God as creator means we are accountable to him. And yes, one day, indeed, we'll have to answer to him, right? And the problem with that for us is that we have sinned against God. Sin is breaking God's law, breaking God's standard, going against His character, His will. It is nice and succinctly summarized in the word rebellion. And the Bible teaches that we've all rebelled. All humanity is therefore condemned. Jesus said that in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. You're condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That condemnation means we're guilty before this God who's our Creator, who we have to answer to, who gets to make the rules and, and lays out the standard. It means we're guilty before Him and thus in our guilt destined for eternal punishment in a real literal place called hell. Which to my surprise is now all of a sudden a radical teaching in the church. But the gospel doesn't stop there, praise God. The other part of the gospel tells us that God so loved the world, He sent His Son for these rebellious, condemned sinners. And that Son was born of a virgin so that He wouldn't have the sin nature that you and I have. And He lived a perfect life on our behalf, keeping the law of God perfectly so that He might be the propitiation, the perfect atoning sacrifice, the substitute on the cross for us. And so He died on a cross. Not to just go through the motions, but to literally and honestly and spiritually pay our penalty. 
and pay our price for our sin. He did that of His own accord and gave up His life enduring the wrath of God for our sin and was literally actually buried in a grave. And then the Bible teaches that this man rose again. Jesus rose from the dead. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, we're told that He rose for our justification so that He would have life Himself and then give us life and stand before God personally on our behalf and declare us innocent and redeemed and forgiven. Declare our debt paid. Colossians chapter 2, it was nailed to the cross with Christ. And then He ascended and lives at the right hand of God interceding for us and has promised to come back and get us and judge the living and the dead. And those who are found to be in Him will be united with God in heaven forever. And those who are not found in Him will still be condemned in their sin. That's the Gospel. That's a message that affects real, internal and external and lasting change. Indeed, eternal change in us, right? That's not a message we encounter truthfully and understand truthfully, and then walk away unchanged by it. Indeed, when we read of people in the Bible who encounter the holiness of God, and then experience the forgiveness of God, they are radically impacted. Most notably in my mind is the account in Isaiah 6 of Isaiah's vision of God on the throne. We know that story, most of us, it's familiar to us. Isaiah has this vision, God is on His throne, and what does that do in Isaiah? It does what it does in every other character that sees the unveiled glory of God. He falls down and he begins to wail. And he cries out, Woe is me! I am undone. It literally means I'm being unwoven. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, the holiness of God for a sinner is a terrifying thing. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10 it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Isaiah falls down like dead, thinks he's coming undone, and the reason is because he sees the holiness of God, and also he knows there is sin in my life. And not just sin in my life, but I live in a sinful world amidst sinful people. And I cannot bear the holiness of God. And in that account, the angel flies, takes a piece of coal from the altar with the tongs, and touches Isaiah's lips. And that signifies Isaiah being cleansed and forgiven of his sin. And then God speaks from his throne and he says what? Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, with unreserved eagerness, screams out, jumps up. Here here am I, send me. His wailing is ceased and it has turned into eagerness to now live for the holy God who once terrified him but now has forgiven him. The gospel changes us. When we encounter a holy God and then are forgiven of our sin by that holy God, we don't stay the same. We are radically transformed to now live for that holy God. 
And Isaiah jumps up and he says, Here I am, send me. And all my inability, and all my fear, and all my uncertainty, I give my life to you, God. Much of the same thing is being said by the Apostle Paul, packed into this little phrase in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. We'll come back to that again. Let's consider for just a brief moment the word worthy that he uses in this verse. A staggering word in my estimation. It's connected to the object of the gospel. Which means the worth that Paul is referencing here is the worth of the object of the gospel. And the worth of the gospel is infinite. How could we ever begin to live according to the infinite worth of the gospel? How could we ever hope to meet the standard of the gospel? To conduct our lives in a way that represents the infinite value of Jesus Christ dying for our sins and resurrecting for our justification. And the point is, we can't. Unless that gospel message is a reality within us. It's the gospel itself that makes us worthy. It's the gospel itself that begins to change us. So we aren't to misinterpret what Paul's saying here. He is not saying... Live worthy of the gospel so that you might possess the gospel. He is saying, live worthy of the gospel because you already possess the gospel. And the reason is because the gospel is the only thing by which God's Spirit will use to transform our lives to live according to it. You might live according to portions of the gospel by your own effort. But you will not reflect the gospel in this world without the indwelling work and grace of God's Spirit. Paul has to teach this to the Galatian Christians in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. He says to them, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Well, no. To be perfected must mean we have to be perfected by the Spirit. That which we've begun with, the Spirit. And so to live worthy of the Gospel is not to earn the Gospel. To live worthy of the Gospel is submit to the transforming work already present within the Gospel. And to continue there. To stay there. And to dwell there. It's perhaps better to say, conduct yourselves according to the Gospel. As it transforms you, as it changes you, as it now defines you, live or conduct yourselves according to this gospel. Now, the word your manner of life here in this phrase is plural. And as we get in later to the rest of verse 27 and verse 28, the application is plural. In other words, to, to say one, in one sense, to live worthy of the gospel is to live, as these verses will tell us, next week, in Christian community. And so the church is to conduct herself 
in a manner worthy of the gospel. But the implication of the plural your is individual. The church can only conduct herself worthy of the gospel if her people conduct themselves worthy of the gospel. Now that phrase, hopefully your Bible has the footnote at the bottom to reference it. The phrase, manner of life be worthy of the gospel signifies the actions and privileges of a citizen of a certain country. It's a theme Paul picks up in chapter 3, verse 20 later. But right now, he's reminding these Philippian believers that though they're citizens of Rome, which is a major deal, they are to rather first and foremost be citizens of heaven. And indeed, the teaching or the meaning there is not that he's calling them to something exceptional, but something normal for citizens of heaven. In other words, he's saying, reflect your country and reflect your king and live now according to the customs of your new country. When he uses this phrase that signifies citizenship, he does so to say, this is expected one of all citizens of heaven. And two, to say it's not an outrageous expectation. We all live as citizens of our context. But as Christians, we're now described as aliens and pilgrims and sojourners. Which means this world is no longer home, is it? We may dwell here. We may live here. But we don't belong here. Instead, we belong to heaven. We've been redeemed and we have a new country and a new citizenship. And we're to live into that citizenship and in light of that citizenship and by the customs of that citizenship. And so Paul is saying, I'm not writing anything that's, that's abnormal to you. I'm not writing anything bizarre. I'm not calling you to something that I, don't, I, I wouldn't call every Christian too, you're new citizens. And so new citizens means you should live as citizens of heaven. Now what does he mean by live? What does he mean by manner of life? Well, on one hand, he means generalities. He means the general disposition of your life, the the direction of your life, the general inclination of your life. But also much more specifically here, he means the very conduct of your life. He's concerned with the mundane things of your existence, the small details and the large details, the ordinary everyday aspects and the life-changing aspects of your life. Putting it all together, he is writing to these Philippian believers and he's saying, I have one central, singularly emphatic purpose for you. And that is for you to submit your life, every area, every aspect, great and small, to the standard of Christ Himself represented in the Gospel. That's the calling of every citizen of heaven. To live in light of our new King. To let every aspect of our existence now be governed by Him. Directed by Him. Oriented by Christ. From every dollar you spend 
to every hour at your job, to the way you treat your spouse or your parents or your children, to your future vacation plans or where you buy a home or where you move to. Everything is now for the Christian governed by Christ. Submitted to the will and to the worth of Jesus. Paul is simply calling these Christians to live according to what they believe. To not preach one thing with their mouth and live another way with their life. Stephen Lawson said, or otherwise we would be walking contradictions. And we still have a major question to answer this morning. What does it actually mean to live in submission to the gospel? What does that actually, practically look like? Not theoretically. Put flesh on these bones. What does that mean? It can best be summarized in one word in my mind, and that word is transformation. And by that word, I mean dying to self and being born again. What Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again, he says, to inherit the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus mean by that metaphor? It's not just fancy language he uses. He means totality, entirely, comprehensively transformed, changed. No longer living by self or for self, but for Christ, which means now, church, as Christians, our speech is different. Our customs are different. Our desires are to be different. Our thoughts are, are to be different. Our hobbies, the way we work our jobs, are to be different. We have different motivation, different purpose, different standards, different goals. We're living for different things than what this world has to offer, namely, the glory of exaltation, and furtherance of Jesus Christ. So we parent in light of that. We purchase things like food in light of that. We wash our car in light of that. As Paul says to the Corinthian church, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are now people singularly focused on and singularly governed by Christ. In a simpler phrase, it means we are actually distinct from the rest of the world. We are no longer like it. Which is something I think is most needed right now in the church. The Bible is also clear God never wants to coerce you into something without knowing all the facts. The Bible is also clear that this is just frankly not an easy calling. Indeed, some portions of the Bible call it painful. It involves things like loving Christ more than mom or dad, or son or daughter, or brother or sister. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 8 of this very letter that he's suffered the loss of all things because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. 
It's not really that he's lost because of all that he's gained, but he's being honest. I've suffered the loss of these things. It wasn't easy. In Luke 14, Jesus uses the parable to teach this principle. He says, don't be like a person who builds a tower without counting the cost first. And the lesson, understand and count the cost before you follow me. What's the cost? Your life. Comprehensive, total, entirely self-denial. Paul in Galatians 2, 20 and 5, 24 and 6, 14 will use the phrase crucify to reference this calling. I have crucified my flesh. The world has been crucified to me. Again, Stephen Lawson writes this. He says, for those who receive this gospel, it always comes at a high price. When anyone believes in Jesus Christ and receives His righteousness and the forgiveness of sin, this act of saving faith requires deep soul-searching and radical self-denial. This step of faith necessitates a supreme commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. A follower must recognize that all they have belongs to their Master. End quote. And the Bible is loaded with such references. Chapter 3 of this letter, Colossians 3, Romans 6, Galatians 5. More and more and more. This is the hard aspect of the Gospel to swallow but the true aspect of the Gospel that the world needs to hear. It's not, Christian faith is not playing church, going through the motions, enjoying traditions, versing ourselves in history, singing fun songs or entertaining ourselves or tickling our egos or building a platform to enhance our own fame and popularity. The Christian faith is a real, honest, true call to self-denial and trust in Jesus Christ. It is a forsaking of the old self and now living in the new nature that Christ is implanting within us. It's a life marked by the confession of God's authority over us, by sin's reality within us, and the need for Jesus and His saving work and faith to be applied to us. Sinclair Ferguson just nicely summarizes it. It's a living illustration of the Gospel. It's exemplifying the very character of God through the sanctified fruit that His Spirit Spirit bears within us. I, I have to take you to Galatians 5 to show you what this looks like. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice they're opposed to each other as Paul will say in just a moment. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We may not be perfectly different as Christians, but as Christians we are increasingly different We're called to live in a manner worthy of the Gospel. We're called to live according to the standard of Christ. So that when we verbally proclaim the Gospel, we would be living illustrations of its beauty and its power and its grace and the love of God dwelling within us. Now I know I'm running out of time. But I want to show you that Paul makes one strange qualifier to this phrase in verse 27. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear certain things of you. We'll cover these certain things later. What is Paul getting at here? If I have one request to give to you, it's this. Submit your entire lives to the standard of Christ and the Gospel. Whether I'm with you or not. Now, my pastor growing up used to tell me he knew I was preparing for the ministry and this was his practice. And he would say, never tell your church that you're going on vacation. Just be gone. His reasoning was based off of experience. He he would say, when the cat's away, the mice will play. In other words, he meant that if people knew I was leaving, they wouldn't come to church. They thought that if the pastor's not there, I don't have to be there. Nobody's going to keep a record. Nobody's holding me accountable, etc., etc. Pastors know that to be true by experience. Sometimes it's difficult to confess where we work or what our vocation is because people change in the conversation. Just by the office that we hold or that we're supposed to represent, they, they try to clean up their behavior. Paul is writing to these Christians and he's saying it shouldn't matter if I'm with you or not. You need to be people faithful to live according to the gospel. Our faith shouldn't, in one sense, be dependent on who's around us. I say that the way I did, saying in one sense, because Christian community is more important than we often give it credit And we need each other to live rightly in the faith. There are no such things as Lone Ranger Christians. But, our faith shouldn't change based on who's around. 
And our conduct shouldn't change based on who's around. We are to be a people faithfully submitting ourselves in every way, shape, and form, and in every area to the standard of the Gospel. And let me tell you why. Because in number one, it reclaims our original design. Living according or worthy of the Gospel is striving to live like we were originally intended to live with God in the garden. Enjoying the fruit of His presence, the nearness of His fellowship and company, the joy of obedience and right living, all of those blessed things that were to be real before sin entered. It's a, it's a way to taste the glories of heaven even now. But also, church, live worthy of the gospel. Submit your life to the gospel. Because not only is it right, not only does it yield to you tremendous blessings, which I'm not getting into this morning, perhaps next week, but it enables you to be a walking, talking example of the power of God in a fallen, dark world. We're it, church. The keepers of divine truth. The bearers and heralds of saving truth. By God's desire, God's ordaining, the gospel goes into this world or doesn't go into this world by the efforts of His people. That's His sovereign choice. So, while it is up to God to save, it is our commission to evangelize and to take the gospel forth. And to do that in the most effective, abundant, glorious, blessed way possible is to share it with our mouths and live it with our lives. I hope, believer, this stirs you to recommit every area of life to Christ, submitting everything to Him. I also hope that perhaps for some of you it has caused you to realize your character just flat out does not line up with the Gospel. It is a lofty calling. But maybe for the first time, by God's grace, you realize there's no way I could say that I'm striving after the Gospel in my conduct, or my thoughts, or my desires. If that be you, then praise God for showing and exposing inconsistencies. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, today can be the day of salvation for you. We are all required at this point to examine our lives and our hearts. To do the deep soul searching. To look for the grace that enables us to live Worthily of Christ. To be honest and confess what is really true in our hearts. To repent. Maybe for some of us, repent for salvation. And respond appropriately. And I trust God's Spirit will lead us in the right direction to do that. Both corporately and individually. Father of all grace, we praise You. Because you've called us to take a part in this 
wonderful plan of redemption. And I know that I can be guilty this morning of standing and and saying that we need to live like this and live like this and conform to this and conform to this. And I, I fear, Father, I may have neglected to stress that it's not by our own effort, but by Your grace and Your Spirit. We cannot live worthy of the Gospel if we're not first saved by the Gospel. We can never sanctify ourselves. We must always submit to Your Spirit. That's, Father, what I meant by the word submit. It may not have communicated. I trust and ask that You would cover over all my blunders this morning and fix my errors. That Your people may be rightly, truly, and fully impacted by Your Word. It's to your glory and to our good, Jesus, I pray. Amen.